Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Supernatural George the podcast. I'm Mittens, and today we are going to be discussing Season 1, Episode 5, Bloody Mary. And just from the title, and just thinking back to the pilot, I always think of Mary, bloody, on the ceiling, dripping blood on Sam. Kripke had planned this originally to be the second episode after the pilot. John's coordinates were going to be restructured to deliver Sam and Dean to Blaine, Missouri, in Kripke's notes that I referenced last week. And yet the episode was moved from the second episode to the fifth, and it was moved from Missouri to Toledo, Ohio, and Fort Wayne, Indiana. The coordinates have nothing to do with this episode. Even the episode itself turns out very different. The little girl who says Bloody Mary first in the cold open was found by her friends at a big party, dead on the floor in the kitchen. And yet in this episode, the little girl survived. In Kripke's notes on this episode, that little girl who died was named Deanna. So let's think about how Kripke feels about Dean and the fact that he killed a little girl named Deanna in the cold open of episode two, or he would have had that original format held. So thank goodness it didn't, because we got something way more interesting, and we didn't kill a little girl named Deanna in the cold open of the second episode of the series. That would have been a little bit uh, long-term. That would have been, oh gosh, that would have had so many negative implications. (laughs) I also started listening to the Zoom interview with Jerry Wanick, done by Jules from SuperWiki, a few weeks ago, and... I haven't listened to, I haven't had a chance to listen to the whole thing yet, but uh, the parts that I have listened to, he's talked a little bit about the making of some of the early episodes of the series and difficulties they ran into just, you know, getting into the groove of learning how to make this new show. And apparently, according to Jerry, the first episode that they filmed after the pilot, they filmed parts of Hookman, but they had trouble. It, you know, the first time Jared and Jensen were working together, I guess, and or they had trouble with some of the special effects or just, just the filming in general, and it had to be reshot, and they had multiple different directors come in on it, which I had never known before. So this was really interesting to me that they ran into so many problems filming Hookman, and clearly they were filming out of episode order even for that original episode order. Um, it was originally supposed to be episode three, I think, but it ended up airing as seven. So it's, it's just interesting to me that because of a lot of these logistical problems and just getting the hang of playing these characters and, and being the crew on this show and all of the other things that they had to hammer out and really work out, how much it changed the story as we know it. Originally, Bloody Mary was supposed to be a murdered 19th century witch who would become a demonic spirit It doesn't even specify in Kripke's original notes which of the brothers would be the one to look into the mirror and summon Bloody Mary to destroy her. So it's interesting that a lot of these details did change by the time they they actually filmed the episode. As I said, one detail that did change was the location of the episode, which was moved to Toledo, Ohio, which is Eric Kripke's hometown. So... (laughs) He kind of gave his 
family and friends a little shout out in the second and what would what he was expecting to be the second episode of the series. Another change is thinking about this episode and the fact that most of it was probably written as the second episode of the series. It's interesting to to look at the brothers dynamic from that perspective, even though we know that they've already been together for three more episodes since the pilot. It's interesting to look at this going, hmm, if this was the first case they worked after the pilot episode, it kind of explains some of the lack of coordination they had with each other and the emotional distance they have from one another. It it kind of gives more of a, a reason for Sam to be unwilling to open up and talk to Dean because by this point, it kind of feels like, geez, Sam, you've been holding this in for five episodes and you still haven't talked to Dean about this stuff. Like, how have you even been sleeping if you're still having nightmares and this is supposed to be like three weeks after I believe there's a newspaper in there somewhere that says it's like the 21st of November. So if the pilot episode starts at Halloween and and Jess dies on November 2nd, this is still like at least three weeks later and Sam is still having nightmares and boy, that really shortens the time frame on the, the other intervening episodes to something really tight between Wendigo, between uh, Dead in the Water, and between Phantom Traveler. That means that those episodes to- all together only took about two weeks. So here we are, like three weeks out, and Sam is still having really bad nightmares. He still hasn't talked to Dean about it, but Dean is trying to let him sleep. So that will create some issues for Sam when he does sleep and we'll we'll start getting a lot more insight into Sam and his character that I think was probably not as big a part of the story originally but as I said you know when they when they took some of this mystery element of the series off of Dean and and gave it to Sam instead because Dean became our character we identified with it opened up a lot of doors for Sam to be explored in this other way through his dreams and visions and what we will see unfold through the rest of season one. Obviously, I'm not going to talk about the what ifs for the whole series. Like, what if what if that had happened? And, and, you know, like Kripke had originally planned. But it is interesting to point out in these earliest episodes so we can kind of understand what we could have had and what what we did end up getting in, instead. Because Kripke's original vision was about this road trip to basically look at supernatural cases that were based on urban legends and ghost stories. And the fact that this is an urban legend, this Bloody Mary is an urban legend. This is the kind of thing that Kripke his original idea was rooted in, and this was supposed to be the bulk of the story, at least the mytharchy part of the story, was supposed to be rooted in these more urban legend things rather than demons and later on angels. And I mean, I'm sure we would have still gotten other supernatural monsters along the way, but his original concept was this sort of episode. So these monster of the week things, that was supposed to be the entirety of the series. So let's all take our weekly moment to be grateful that that didn't happen. And we got a much bigger and more beautiful story (laughs) than 
probably what would have been a season or two of monster of the week type, like almost like a procedural, but with monsters. (laughs) I've talked a lot in the, in the last few episodes since the pilot about fear being a driving factor in the narrative right now, like Dean's fears and how he copes and Sam learning to come to grips with his own fears rather than just running away from them and pretending that things don't exist and how this is a very fundamental difference in their characters and where they will grow from here because Sam is still learning to even confront his fear, let alone deal with it. And Dean has basically shoved it all down and put on this mask of that he's okay all the time. <laughs> that all that whole I'm fine, you know, is so not true for either of them, but the way they construct that mask of being fine is very different. You know, Sam runs away and Dean represses. In this episode, we're going to see Sam begin to confront his fears, even if he's not ready to talk to Dean about them yet. But fear is still always going to be a part of the show. It's a horror. There's always going to be fear. But in this episode specifically, and with Bloody Mary, this episode is about guilt. Perceived guilt, real guilt. Some of the characters actually have committed acts that they should feel guilty about. Others have taken blame upon themselves when they're not actually responsible. And that opens up a lot of questions for when we, before we knew what, what Sam's dreams were really about and what his personal blame was in Jess's death, we are confronted with wondering what it could be. And I will talk about that later in the episode, but I just wanted people to be paying attention to these themes of guilt and fear and how they carry through this episode. So let's start with our cold open. We have three little girls. The script says they're about 11 years old. They are having like a spooky sleepover and all candles lit and they're playing truth or dare. One of them dares the other to say Bloody Mary in the mirror three times. One of the other girls doesn't know what it is. And they explain like, oh, I heard she was a witch. Oh, I heard she died in a car accident. They they don't even know where the legend came from. All they know is Bloody Mary would come appear and scratch your eyes out. They dare Lily, the girl whose house it is to go say it and she does and she's freaked out she's like visibly freaked out the candle sort of gutters in a breeze in the bathroom with the door shut and she's freaking out but uh, her friends bang on the door real hard and scare her and that was the whole goal I mean to them this is is only as real as it is Lily didn't even believe it herself until her father complained to them to keep the noise down and he goes into the bathroom and finds out that maybe Bloody Mary is real. We see Bloody Mary appear like the girl from The Ring, just out of frame in all of the mirrors as he walks through his house. He doesn't see her, but we do from the angle that we're at. Like, when he's looking directly on in the mirror, it's like he's being stalked by Bloody Mary. And he goes into the bathroom, takes his pills, shuts the mirror, and then his eyes begin to bleed. I don't think that he ever even sees anyone else in the bathroom. She's just out of sight. We ourselves don't get to see what happens to the father beyond the point where he's noticing something wrong with his face in the mirror. But we cut to uh, Lily's older sister arriving home. 
and going upstairs, seeing something weird on the floor outside the bathroom, and she pushes the door open to a huge puddle of blood and sees her father dead on the floor and screams. And that goes directly, cuts directly into what we will find out is Sam's nightmare. He's lying in bed, and he opens his eyes and sees Jess on the ceiling, and she says, Hi, Sam. And then she bursts into flames and says, bye, Sam. And her voice, it it sounds demonic in that shot. Uh, But she says, bye, Sam. Then we cut to Dean shaking Sam awake in the car. And we recognize that that was his nightmare. And we find out that he's been having these nightmares all along. So this is kind of the first time we've really talked about Sam's nightmares since right after the pilot, like the opening shots of... Wendigo, we haven't really addressed those for the last few episodes because, again, they were kind of jumbled out of order and now we're finally getting to address this again. It feels like it's overdue at this point. And this is also the first time we see them going into a morgue to sneak past a medical examiner or talk to a medical examiner or ask questions of a medical examiner. They go in with no plan and just pose as college students working on a paper. So med students, and this is Dean's lie here. They don't try to go in as feds. They don't try to go in as people investigating the case or they go in straight up. This is our what we're writing for our term paper or something and and try and pass it off. And the medical assistant is not having it. He's not interested, not willing to show them around until Sam opens his wallet and pulls out a a bunch of 20s and plops them down on the desk. Then the guy goes from no way am I ever going to help you to actually quite ghoulish about his glee and telling them everything about this case and talking about it. And it's delightfully ghoulish. I just love how his entire demeanor shifts. And all it took was a hundred bucks to unlock Mr. Overly Helpful and really kind of creepy guy. Um, but anyway, there's a there's a great scene here also about the differences in Sam and Dean. When Sam pulls the money out, when the guy takes the money and walks away, Dean hits Sam and is like, dude, I earned that money. You know, that's that's, you know, why are you just throwing so much money away at this guy? It was like over 100 bucks. It was at least 100 bucks. And Sam's like, you want it playing poker? And Dean's like, well, yeah, like, how else do we earn money, you moron? Like, that's that's what we need to live on. I, you know, it doesn't just grow on trees. It's not, it's not fun money or something because I want it playing poker instead of working at another job. Like, it's, it's kind of interesting how, you know, even having lived as a normal person for so many years and a strapped for cash normal person, he was a college student. Sam, you know, he wasn't out there like making a hundred grand a year or something. You know, he's spending a hundred grand a year on college. He still doesn't really get this relationship with money that Dean has. And we will find out later, you know, a lot of a lot of the financial responsibility was put on Dean and D- and Sam just never really had to worry about it because John or Sam or Dean would bring home money and or allocate money for food and gas and car repairs and medical things and weapons and everything else that they have to buy. Uh, Motel rooms, you know, they use their fraudulent credit cards where they can, but cash is for more than just bribing medical examiners with. They need money to live. 
And Sam just blew what Dean probably worked a whole night to earn. Sam's not even concerned about it. Like, oh, well, he can just go play poker again, I guess, you know. So there's a lot of difference in how each of them approaches even just having a wallet full of money that was supposed to probably last them a week. And now it's gone. That might make things difficult (laughs) down the line. So back to our morbid morgue attendant who describes how the man on his table died, that he had massive bleeding in his head, stroke, aneurysm. They're not entirely sure, but his eyes exploded. And I'm sorry, this is like the worst thing for me. It's like eye horror. I, I can stand almost any kind of horror except stuff to do with eyes. And this freaks me out every time. So I'm, I apologize to anyone listening to this, but I unfortunately have to describe it for the episode. I won't go into detail, though. But we find out that they don't really have a cause of death on him. They can't figure it out. It's a mystery to them so far. Dean asks to see the police report. The morgue attendant is like, I'm not really supposed to show anybody that. And so Sam pulls out his wallet and Dean resigns himself to the fact that, well, at least we'll get the information we need. As they're leaving, Sam wonders if this might just be a weird freak medical event and not actually one of their types of cases. And Dean points out when in all of dad's hunting career has it ever been just a weird medical thing and not something supernatural. And Sam's like, uh, almost never. So that's the baseline for us. Almost always when they encounter something totally bizarre, it's going to be supernatural, except for the almost never. Every once in a while, it's just going to be people. After they leave the morgue, they go to the dead man's house and to talk to his daughter, Donna, but they walk into a wake. The house is filled with people who are all there to pay their respects. And the older daughter, Donna, who found her father, is sitting in the backyard with two of her friends and her little sister, Lily, the one who said Bloody Mary. This is such an interesting scene about Dean and how he deals with this sort of thing and how easily he lies about stuff but also how he deals with children, how he deals with terrifying things in general, and how he has long dealt with Sam and keeping stuff from Sam. We won't find out until far later in the series the extent of things that he has kept from Sam over the years on John's orders or to protect Sam or whatever. But we'll see Dean very smoothly lie his way through this, but in a way that is comforting and actually helps this little girl. Dean and Sam present themselves as some people who worked with the girl's father. And one of their friends, Charlie, immediately looks suspicious at that. She looks just upset, angry, far more than, than Donna does. Donna, whose father has just died, just seems sad, obviously. But she's also got to care for her little sister, Lily, And Lily feels personally responsible for her father's death. Sam and Dean ask if he'd experienced a history of headaches, trying to determine if it could have been a stroke. And she's like, no. And then Lily says, because it wasn't a stroke, it was Bloody Mary. And explains that she said it in a mirror three times and she was blaming herself for his death. So she has been feeling guilty that she had been the cause of her father's death this whole time. 
And as we will find out later, that is why why Bloody Mary attacks. It doesn't have to be a direct physical causality here. It just has to be somebody feels guilty for something they did, even if it's in a magical thinking kind of way. Lily did not cause her father's death. She summoned Bloody Mary, but that did not cause her her father's death. It wasn't her conscious action. But what Dean says here actually probably saves her life because if Bloody Mary was still out there, you know, Lily would have been vulnerable to her now because if she blamed herself for her father's death, Bloody Mary could have come for her. But what Dean convinces her so easily is, well, your father didn't say Bloody Mary, right? So you couldn't have heard him with that unless he said it too. And she believes him and she no longer feels guilty for her father's death. So she is effectively saved from Bloody Mary because she was able to shed that guilt, even though in the very next scene, Sam and Dean go in the house to to look at the room where their father died. The first thing they talk about is, oh yeah, well, the Bloody Mary myth, is that real? Is that something dad's ever looked into? And they're talking about it as if they both know that it was Bloody Mary who killed that man, even though they don't have proof yet, or they don't have, they haven't researched the whole root cause of this. But they know that that little girl summoned something into the house, but they were not about to let her believe that. And, you know, even Sam. But it was Dean who did the talking in that scene and Dean who convinced her, your sister's right. It wasn't your fault. It was nothing you did. And oh my God, I wish Sam and Dean had somebody that would have told them this at some point during their life. Well, I mean, Sam has had Dean most of his life to tell him stuff like this and to convince him things were going to be okay and to tell the lies that we'll see when we start getting flashback episodes to their childhood we'll see that Dean uses the same technique when he is a child himself to convince Sam that everything's going to be okay that John's not going to be killed by monsters because he's the best hunter and he's like superhero and and Sam even as a child takes comfort in that even though we know that Dean as a child himself, takes no comfort in it. But he still he still works to preserve that for Sam. I just wish somebody had worked to do anything like that for Dean. Upstairs in the shoemaker house, while they're trying to avoid saying the words Bloody Mary in front of the bathroom mirror where Mr. Shoemaker has died, Charlie comes up and let's talk about Charlie for a minute. A girl named Charlie on this show... We all know who our most famous Charlie is, and it's in- it's an interesting choice of character name reuse many years down the line, but this is a very different Charlie. She's instantly suspicious of Sam and Dean outside. She follows them upstairs and questions them, like, what are you doing here? Why are you in the bathroom? And then Dean's like, well, we, we had to go to the bathroom. And what a weird thing for two grown men to go to the bathroom together. Like, I could see, like, if you were at a sports event or something, like a big gathering of people that you might be talking to somebody and go to the a group men's room type situation together. Like, but for crying out loud, two men don't go upstairs to the bathroom in a stranger's house. <laughs> like, just alone to a, like a normal house bathroom. Like, this is just weird. What do you guys, why? What? Come on, better lie than that next time. <laughs> but they're trying to figure out like, could this be a real person who died in this town? Like Bloody Mary, because everywhere else in the country, people say Bloody Mary all the time. 
There's so many different variants on the urban legends, except the part where everybody gets their eyes scratched out. That's the only part that seems consistent, that it's someone named Mary and the person who says it gets their eyes scratched out. Except in this case, it wasn't the person who said it. It was somebody else. And they're trying to figure out why. But Charlie corners them and is like, why are you here? I don't believe your story that you worked with Donna's father because he worked alone. He worked from home. He didn't have co-workers. She begins questioning why they're in the house, why they're asking all the weird questions, why they're interested in this, and asks them if they're cops and Dean's like something like that. Uh, supernatural cops, I guess, but not. <laughs> I hate the idea of them being thought of as cops. So they go to investigate the case in, in the local library, which for some reason has most of the lights turned off in the middle of the day, because that's normal at a library. Makes it super easy to read in the dark. And they go and investigate looking up cases that could give them a hint about who Bloody Mary might be. Because if they can find the a person attached to this legend, they might be able to just salt and burn bones or handle a ghost, like a specific ghost, if they knew who it was. So Sam's t- saying it won't be too annoying to search the public records uh, to find people named Mary who died terribly in this town because at the library they have access to the computers, except both computers that they have in this library are out of order which is another interesting thing that originally this episode was planned to be episode two. Sam doesn't have his laptop, this trusty laptop that we start seeing, you know, in every episode after the pilot, except this one, because this was, I guess, before he got his laptop. Uh, But for some reason, they needed to go to the library to use a computer instead of, you know, Sam actually having a laptop. Plot says they needed to have to look through records manually, so computers out of service and Sam got amnesia that he actually has a laptop out in the car. (laughs) After the library scene, we cut to Charlie actually feeling a bit concerned about her meeting with Sam and Dean in the upstairs hallway. She's talking on the phone. She's driving, talking on the phone, which, you know, you're not supposed to do. And, but I guess in 2005 that hadn't become like a major campaign of no talking on the phone while driving yet, but don't do that folks. And she's talking with her friend, Jill, who was the third high school age girl that had been with Donna at the funeral. This is the first we've really heard from Jill, but Jill is joking that maybe it really was Bloody Mary. Like, because Charlie was wondering what on earth Sam and Dean could have been investigating about their friend's father's death. Jill is just really flippant about it. She's not concerned. She just thinks Sam and Dean were cute, and Charlie agrees that they were cute. So this is back when Sam and Dean were still of an age when high school girls wouldn't be creeped out by thinking they were cute. (laughs) which is fun in later seasons when they're talking to younger people like high school, even college age kids who think they're old at that point. So I I love it. (laughs) It's still plausible that, you know, an 18 year old would think Sam and Dean were cute at this point and feel flirty towards them rather than concerned about why they were investigating. But Jill jokes and she's, she scares Charlie by going into the bathroom and actually saying Bloody Mary three times and then just going silent and then fake screaming just to freak Charlie out. Charlie's upset about this, 
But Jill hangs up and begins her nightly routine. And we see in every mirror in her room, just out of sight from her line of sight, we see Bloody Mary. Jill looks in the mirror. She says something about, you know, you killed that boy. And then her eyes bleed and she dies. Uh, Shocker. From Jill's death, we cut to another version of Sam's nightmare or Jessica on the ceiling going from in flames to not in flames, like reverse of the previous nightmare. And this time at the end, she just says, bye, Sam. And then he wakes up. But this time they're not in the car. They're in a motel. I just got to say, before we go on, the first guy died because of some inexplicable the morgue attendant had never seen it before type of death from an aneurysm or a stroke or a blood clot or something happened in his brain and exploded his eyes. And now here we have a second person who is not a middle-aged man, young high school aged, probably 18 girl who had died of the exact same symptoms. And I'm just wondering what the morgue attendant would have said about this, especially once there start to be more bodies. Like, how do you explain it and just write it off as, oh, it was probably a stroke? It's just wondering what the morgue, what the guy at the morgue must think about this weirdness. So while Sam had been sleeping because Dean's an awesome brother who let him sleep until he woke up with his nightmare, Dean had been doing some research, hasn't found anything that could be Bloody Mary in this entire town. They found no real human named Mary who died in a tragic way that involved eyes or mirrors. Just as they're questioning whether this is actually Bloody Mary or something else, Sam gets a call from Charlie. He'd given her, her his number and said to call if, if anything unusual happened. And she called them and asked them to meet her, crying over her friend Jill, who had died in the same way that Donna's dad did. She knows that Jill had summoned Bloody Mary right before she died. Poor Charlie thinks she's nuts for even thinking that this could be a ghost that killed her friend or the legend of Bloody Mary killed her friend. Sam and Dean believe it really could be, and they convince her to help them get into Jill's house to look at the scene where she died themselves. I have to say, stop and say one more thing here because I don't think Sam through this entire... I've talked about their voices and we all know how Dean's voice gets lower and lower through the seasons, especially after season four. But Sam, through I don't think he's used the full power of his voice yet in this episode. He has just been in full-on whisper mode and I don't know which order the episodes were actually filmed in, if, if this may have been one of the first, but I don't have an explanation for why Sam only talks in whispers here. Even when he and Dean are alone in their hotel room or in the car or where nobody else can overhear them. It's like, just put a little oomph in there and make your voice heard, Sam. <laughs> I know, thank God he outgrows that or makes a better acting choice. I don't know, but Again, I just have to vent about it at least once every time episode when he does it, that it just, oh, it's, it's very hard for me to listen to. <laughs> so Charlie helps them break into Jill's house. And we get an interesting 
hunting 101 that we'll never hear about again, except in ways that they sort of use to mock how bad they were at hunting in the beginning. Uh, they pull out camcorders, like little hand handheld camcorders. Apparently the one that Dean has, that Sam has, has a night vision mode on it. He shoots Dean through it, and it's freaky to look at Dean through that night vision camera on the little camcorder screen, because he looks like he has black eyes in that. And, I mean, obviously that foreshadowing doesn't pay off for, like, nine more seasons, but <laughs> it's... Uh, it's it's kind of interesting to, to see that shot, knowing that someday Dean will be a demon, and they didn't have any idea about that at, when they were originally making this, obviously, but it's just interesting now that also the camcorders themselves are something that we really don't ever see them use to try and spot spectral evidence or whatever. It's like, almost like they're, they're starting out wondering, like, trying to feel out the the writers themselves were trying to feel out the lore of this universe and how ghosts work and how people would detect or hunt ghosts and and it's like what were they were they were borrowing from ghost hunter tv shows or something who use like camcorders and spectral evidence and floating orbs and stuff that they mentioned in a few episodes but it's it's not something that sam and dean normally rely on they've detect ghosts through cold spots and they're they can see their breath and they don't really need to go hunting for this sort of evidence anymore after the next time i think we see them use camcorders we see the the ghost facers obviously in hell house use them and they get mocked for it we'll see sam and dean showing um in hollywood babylon they will the producer of the show will actually incorporate using their phone cameras to spot the ghosts so that they can shoot them with rock salt. And they'll even incorporate that into the movie, the Hellhazers movie. And it's kind of used mockingly because so much of that episode is mocking notes that they've received on the show. Like everything that you hear in that episode is stuff that they've actually gotten those literal word for word notes on about, well, maybe they have super hearing and stuff like that for like how do ghosts hear you from hell or whatever. It's the same thing. I, I'm betting that this use of the camera phones and we need to see what they're what they're finding and how are they finding it? Let's maybe they have camcorders and it shows up on video like, you know, that this must have been a network note that was one of those stupid kind of things that they had to incorporate because once this episode is done, we really don't see this again. So another one that's chalked up to the. Cristo list, I suppose we should call it the Cristo list. I'm going to have to make a Cristo list now, aren't I? Hmm. So with his little night vision camcorder, Sam spots something weird along the bottom edge of a mirror. And he takes the mirror off, rips the paper off the back of it, and sends Dean to get a black light from the car. Under black light, they see a handprint and they can read the name Carrie Bryman. Charlie has no idea who that is. So Sam goes to research it and they find out it was an eight-year-old boy who was killed by a hit-and-run driver driving a car that matches the description of Jill's car. Charlie realizes that Jill killed this boy. So she was directly responsible for his death and that's what she felt guilty for. That's the person that she killed that Bloody Mary accused her of killing. 
based on her own guilt. That opens us up to some new questions. Donna's father was not the one who summoned Bloody Mary. That was her sister, Lily, who summoned Bloody Mary. But Lily was unharmed. She wasn't guilty of anything. She didn't feel responsible for anyone's death until after her father died, and now she's been absolved of that. She doesn't carry the burden of guilt, feeling guilty for someone else's death. Her father did. That's the key here. So once they figure out this pattern... They go back to Donna's house and the back of the mirror under black light reveals the hand, the same handprint and the name Linda Shoemaker, who was Donna's mother, who died of an overdose of sleeping pills. And yet it was her father who felt guilt at ha- being responsible for her death because they were his pills. We never find out in the episode. It's they they wonder if he actually over- gave her the overdose or if she took it herself. Either way, he felt guilty, whether he was directly responsible for it and actually murdered her or if he was indirectly responsible for it, for having the sleeping pills in the bathroom cupboard and her accidentally or on purpose taking the overdose. It's never made clear, and in that case, in that respect, it becomes kind of irrelevant because it doesn't matter if he physically killed her or not. It's the fact that he experienced guilt from it, because as we will learn from Charlie herself, it's not the physical act of actually killing someone that matters here. It's just bearing the burden of guilt that somebody died and feeling like you could have done something to prevent it, even if there was nothing you could have done. After they discover about Linda's death, they talk to Donna, and she gets very upset about being questioned about her mother's death, you know, saying it was just an overdose, that's it, and she tells them to leave. Charlie stays behind to, to comfort her and, and, and keep her safe, and she swears she will not say Bloody Mary. Donna is very upset at this point. Sam and Dean go back to their room and Dean begins researching in depth. He's taken the search nationwide. He's hacking into databases, NCIC, FBI database, and he's on the laptop. And it's really interesting to me that in this episode that was originally supposed to be the second episode of the series, it's Dean with the computer skills. It's Dean doing the research. It's Sam questioning, why why even bother? You've already searched, you know, it's got to be somebody local. You know, why, why bother looking nationwide? And Dean is the one who's like, no, we're pushing this out. We're doing more research. We're because a lot of people assume the stereotype that Dean hates research, that it's Sam who's the smart one who does all this stuff. And no, it is literally not just Sam. You know, Dean is perfectly capable. Also, I'm wondering where this laptop was that they're using in the motel room now. Earlier in the episode, when they had to go to the library and see the broken computers, and Dean was doing all of the research by hand in books. Also in this episode, they have another murder wall with some of the same pictures from previous episodes of notes and stuff tacked up to the walls in this motel. It's not even a focus of their research. They haven't even referenced any of the pages on the wall yet. Dean even has a little printer to go with his laptop and prints out 
nice photographic quality images of a crime scene from Fort Wayne, Indiana, where a 19-year-old woman named Mary Worthington was brutally murdered in her apartment in front of a mirror. Her eyes were cut out. And with her blood, she left a handprint on the mirror and began writing the name of the person she was trying to accuse of killing her who was never charged with her with her murder and never was punished for it. Sam and Dean drive to Fort Wayne, Indiana to interview the police officer who investigated the crime. He's retired now, but he never was able to solve the case. They suspected this one suspect, but were never able to build a case against him. So Mary in her vengeful ghostiness has gone on to punish others who summon her if they have that same sort of guilt in their heart of having killed someone and not taken their punishment for it. She will dish out your punishment for you. Sam and Dean find out that the mirror that Bloody Mary left her handprint on was given back to her family after her murder and they're going off to find what happened to the mirror Meanwhile, back at school, Donna and Charlie are in the bathroom at school, and Donna is still very upset with Charlie for having brought Sam and Dean to her house to ask her those questions about her mother. She gets so upset at Charlie's fear and belief in Bloody Mary that she just turns to the mirror and says it three times. Charlie is really upset now that she would do that because Donna refuses to see that Jill and her father both died in the exact same way. She says to Charlie, God, you're, there is something wrong with you. You know, like, why are you believing this? My 12-year-old sister believes this, even though it's totally just a made-up story. But it's not just a made-up story. Charlie is now being stalked. We're seeing in the reflections of all the windows in the hallway of the school building that she's being stalked. Sitting in class, Charlie opens a compact mirror and is the first one of her victims to actually see Bloody Mary before anything happens to her. She slams the mirror shut, but Bloody Mary is reflected in the, gl- in the window glass. She throws, she screams and throws a chair through it. All uh, Her teacher tries to restrain her and, and calm her down, but he's wearing glasses and she sees Bloody Mary reflected in the lenses of his glasses and screams again and runs away. I just have to say one thing that I find so amusing. This poor teacher, he is in several other episodes of Supernatural, um, but absolutely the most notably, he plays the depressed giant teddy bear in uh, Wishful Thinking in the episode with the wishing well and the the suicidal giant teddy bear. (laughs) Um, He plays the voice of that, of the bear. (laughs) So poor guy in this episode just freaks out uh, over Charlie, but he's also our giant depressed suicidal teddy bear. Meanwhile, in the car on the way back from Fort Wayne, Sam finds out that the mirror had been in Mary Worthington's family for years until it was sold a week ago to an, antique shop in Toledo, which is why Mary is suddenly cropping up in Toledo. Um, She can travel between all the mirrors. There's been a lot of talk in this episode about mirrors being reflections of, of someone's soul. And in this case, they were talking about a mirror trapping someone's soul, like 
why we cover mirrors at when someone has died in a house to prevent their soul from being trapped in the mirror. Which They talked about mirrors as showing your true self back to you. There's lore in so many cultures about what mirrors are and how they show you your true self or your soul or however you want to call it. It's also interesting because throughout this entire series, I'm going to be talking so much about narrative mirrors and character mirrors and how, you know, side characters will mirror the main character's current emotional crisis throughout the entire series. They use this in almost every episode. And it's interesting that very early on, we get an episode with literal mirrors that are literally showing people their literal guilt and their true self and their hidden identity and revealing things to everybody's detriment because it kills them. But I just find that's an interesting literal parallel to make, uh, to to make this a mirror of (laughs) mirrors in mirrors. (sighs) Boy, I really should probably start recording these earlier at night so I'm not all loopy by the end of them. Anyway, back to the actual episode. Sam gets a call from Charlie, terrified because she is now seeing Bloody Mary after Donna summoned her. So Charlie clearly has some death that she feels guilt or responsibility for. She calls Sam and Dean asking for help. They bring her back to their hotel room in the dark with her face buried in her knees. And they take down every mirror, every photograph, every reflective surface, keep the room very dark and cover or remove every possible surface that Bloody Mary could reflect on. And Sam busts out the whisper voice again. But in this case, it's probably warranted because this poor girl is friggin' terrified. Also of note, in a set dressing way, one of the items that Dean takes down off the wall to cover a reflective surface is the famous Starburst clock. That will appear in many episodes of the over the course of the series. Very notably, it, it, it's in uh, Yellow Fever when Dean is uh, suffering from ghost sickness. He smashes this uh, one of the starburst clocks to make it stop ticking because he's you know so afraid of everything. So interesting tie-in with fear, the starburst clock, guilt. It's all right here in this scene. Sam assures her that they're going to keep her safe. Then Dean sits down and says, well, we need to know what happened. And Charlie starts describing how Donna conjured Bloody Mary in the school bathroom. And Dean's like, no, no, that's not what we mean. We mean, why is Bloody Mary coming after you? What personal guilt do you have? And in order to save her from this, They need her to confront it and admit it. And it's probably something she's never even spoken out loud before. But she has to admit out loud that she feels guilt over this. Even absolving her of it might not necessarily save her. But it's a start. So Charlie's secret that Bloody Mary latched on to was that she broke up with her boyfriend who kind of scared her. So we're thinking abusive boyfriend here who regretted the argument that frightened her and caused her to break up with him and was attempting to manipulate her to get her back into the relationship saying, you know, he loved her and needed her and threatened to kill himself if she didn't take him back. And she said, go ahead and left. 
and she felt so guilty because he apparently actually did kill himself. She didn't believe that he would. Like she didn't, she thought he was just being dramatic or manipulative and she had walked away from him and honestly good for her because that's what you do to abusive boyfriends that scare you. But that didn't stop her from feeling guilty. Like it was her fault. Like she was responsible. Like she should have said something else. If she had just said, you know, don't do that, you know, live your life, but you don't need me in it it, or something. You know, she'd said anything else. She may not have internalized this guilt, but she did. And Bloody Mary latched onto that and was using it to hurt her. The next little conversation in the car between Sam and Dean as they go to find the mirror to destroy it is really interesting because Sam is Sam frames it as, well, you know, ghosts don't see in shades of gray when Dean says, well, it's clear Charlie was not responsible for her boyfriend's death. Like just breaking up with somebody doesn't make you guilty of murder. Even if that person threatens suicide, it's not your responsibility to stay with an abusive person to keep them alive for themselves. You know, it's like, that's not how it works. You're not legally guilty of murder for walking away and protecting yourself and not believing somebody's what could have been an empty threat. But Sam's like, well, ghosts don't see shades of gray. And I don't think it's that at all. I don't think it's, I think it's just, you know, if if you feel guilt, it's, it's like almost like Sam was saying that, yes, she actually was guilty, according to the ghost, instead of just that she has internalized that guilt and has taken it upon herself when she probably didn't deserve it. And as we know from Sam and Dean, they both do this an awful lot. But Sam specifically is doing it right now. He's the one who truly believes that his confession or his conjuration would be the thing that would bring Bloody Mary, that she would find him an appealing target for her specific flavor of wrath, that Sam feels directly responsible for Jessica's death. He tells Dean that he believes Bloody Mary will come if he summons him. And Dean thinks this is a terrible idea and tries to talk Sam out of it. First, by saying, you know, don't be stupid. And second of all, by saying, but you're not responsible for Jessica's death. Something killed her. You didn't kill her. Dean's like, be mad at me. I'm the one who took you away and convinced you to come away with me for the whole weekend before she died. Like, if I hadn't done that, you would have been there. Blame me. Don't blame yourself. It's not your fault. And... Sam's like, well, I don't blame you at all. And it's like, but he still internalizes that guilt, even though he doesn't deserve it himself. And as we'll find out later on, he was literally put into a relationship with her by demons organizing this to be, have her specifically killed when it was time for Sam to go back to hunting so that he could be in the right place at the right time for all the events of the the beginnings of the apocalypse and breaking the seals and all of that. Like, All of that is being set up through his relationship with Jess and Jess's death. So just as much as Mary was manipulated into everything and her deal and everything that we'll find out later, Sam has also been manipulated into feeling guilt over this. And like none of it is his fault. And at least Dean is unlike when he talks to Lily earlier and says, well, you didn't, you didn't, you know, dad didn't summon Bloody Mary and convinces the 11 year old child that she's not responsible for her father's death. Sam really isn't 
directly responsible for Jess's death. It doesn't matter if Dean had come and taken him away that weekend. It doesn't matter because demons were manipulating the situation. You know, it was part of God's story. In the very basic way, Sam is in no way responsible for Jess's death, although he has internalized that guilt and he feels that guilt and he's ashamed of it and he can't even admit it to Dean and it's tied up with other things that he's afraid of that he can't confront and face yet, like his psychic powers that gave him the dreams that we'll find out about eventually, but because I'm off on a tangent, we haven't gotten there yet. But (laughs) they're in the car and Sam finally convinces Dean that they really don't have another option of stopping Bloody Mary than summoning her somewhere else so she will not kill Charlie. Because Charlie right now is just locked in their hotel room trying not to look at reflective things. And that's no, she, she can't stay like that forever, you know? <laughs> Dean suggested just smashing the mirror that Bloody Mary was attached to. But Sam doesn't think that will work because of her ability to jump from mirror to mirror to mirror at will. Um, that she could just keep doing that forever and hide out in in, in another mirror. Um, he's not sure that smashing her original mirror that her spirit is tied to will actually kill her. Which, I mean, it's 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 a stretch, but it, I, I could see it in a covering all of our bases sort of way, but it, it does seem kind of redundant based on what we know of ghosts and how they possess artifacts that they are physically attached to, that she was attached to this mirror because she literally it absorbed a piece of her soul, but apparently she's different than other ghosts that are attached to items in that, that she can leave her mirror, quote unquote, and go to other mirrors to enact vengeance on people. It's a stretch for them, but I, I will give them that bit of leeway. I also find it interesting to look at this episode from the perspective of it was nearly the second episode in the series and how Wendigo was reworked probably quite a lot to make it stand in as the second episode of the series but in this episode it's Dean who wants to walk away and Sam is the one who's like that girl back at our our motel will die unless we do this you know lots more people will die unless we do this it's Sam giving that pep talk to Dean about you know we we've got to save everybody and it's really interesting because when we see Wendy Wendigo, it's Dean who's having to give Sam the saving people, hunting things. And when Sam questions, why do you even do this? You know, but when when we now know that this was written as the second episode of the series, the fact that it's Sam who wants to save the innocents, it's just kind of startling that he needed that pep talk just a few episodes ago. But in context of seeing that these scripts were reversed, it was a major change very early on, episode two, that put Dean in the, in the role that was originally going to be Sam's. Dean became our audience conduit. He became the follow me, I have the, I have the game plan character. And it feels weird in this episode that it's Sam pulling Dean into it when we know that this was originally scheduled to be the the second episode and that it was supposed to be Sam pulling Dean into it. And 
it changes the entire tone of what the series would have been if they had held to that original concept. And again, so glad we got what we got instead. And we're working our way through those first episodes and just a few more and we'll be out past the original game plan and into territory that feels a lot fresher to me. Like it's, it doesn't feel like it's tainted with that other idea of what the show would have been. It feels more honest. It feels more like it less suffocating as far as insular stories that don't really breathe yet and don't really have a larger universe attached to them yet. And I mean, that's just part of the nature of any show setting up an entire fictional universe in a few episodes. It takes a while for it to really start to feel like a full place instead of just looking at glimpses of different aspects of a, of a, a universe. And by the time we get through these original episodes, we seem to have covered everything from every different part of the country or a lot of different parts of the country. So their physical universe, but also the the types of things that they hunt, everything from various and sundry one-off monsters, ghosts, vengeful spirits, uh, demons even, and everything that they really touch on in the first few seasons kind of gets at least lip service in these first few episodes or the basis for what those potentialities could be are rest within these first 10 episodes or so. I just think it's a really interesting character shift, noting how odd it seems that Dean isn't like, yeah, well, I'll go and and summon Bloody Mary, blah, blah, blah. You know, I've got plenty of my own guilt or whatever. He doesn't. And that becomes a core part of Dean's character because in this episode, he would have had to admit his guilt over something in the mirror. And he would have had to say it to Sam. I have a a burden of guilt like that too. And originally when this episode was written, he wasn't going to have that sort of burden of guilt. Well, he was in a respect in that, you know, Bloody Mary still affects him, but he was supposed to be our mysterious character, not our hero character. And in this episode, Sam is still trying to play the hero character. And it's really just, I'm just, having a hard time reconciling it after all these years, even because even later this season, Dean will be like, well, I'll, of course I'll be the one to sacrifice myself or I'll be the one to do it. Dean doesn't, doesn't even offer that in this episode. He's only trying to talk Sam out of doing it. And Sam's the one who brings up, well, Charlie's going to die. Lots of other people are going to die unless we do this. And that's kind of what Sam was saying in the, in last episode, when Dean had to confront his fear about flying, either we do this together or I do this alone. There's no third way here. Otherwise people are going to die. And that was Dean confronting a direct lifelong fear of flying. This is Dean just not admitting a personal guilt. Like it, it doesn't even seem comparable on a scale of fear things, but this will become a core thing of Dean's personality. Repression of guilt, playing the I'm fine card forever and ever even though we know there is this deep well of guilt in him, or he would not have triggered Bloody Mary's curse on himself as well as Sam, you know, because she affects Dean just as badly as she did Sam. So they break into the antique shop and are confronted with dozens of mirrors. 
Yay. Um, which makes it hard to find one specific mirror in a hall of mirrors. But they eventually do find it. There's a couple of creepy mannequins in the background and all your other sort of usual antique shop junk lying around. But we are given a nice shot of the blinking alarm panel that when they broke into the the antique shop, they triggered the alarm. And despite the fact that they're looking at all the walls and stuff, neither of them seems to notice this blinking alarm panel. They find the mirror. Sam hands his flashlight to Dean to hold. Dean gives him one more chance to back back out of doing it. And Dean stands behind him to his side to guard Sam during this. Sam faces the mirror, holds up a crowbar, and says the name three times. Just as he does, a light shines through the front window of the store, and Dean realizes the police have come, the alarm's been rung, and goes out to confront them while Sam confronts the mirror and waits for Bloody Mary. So Dean's outside being questioned by the police, like they draw their guns and he's like, whoa, 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 no, 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 I'm the owner's kid. He's clearly not Mr. Yamashiro's kid. Uh, Eventually he just gets fed up with answering the police questions that he has no answers for and knocks the two police officers out on the sidewalk. And at this point, it becomes a, well, we really got to take care of this quick (laughs) sort of situation. And it's like, well, first of all, why didn't you just take the mirror out of there with you to a place where there were no other mirrors for her to jump to and summon her to her mirror and have one mirror to smash? And boy, that would have been really smart, wouldn't it? But no, I think they were both too emotionally fraught about the fact that Sam was going to be risking his life doing this. And Dean, too, by just being in the room and knowing that he has a burden of guilt about people's deaths. And Bloody Mary may decide that being a hunter made him responsible for a lot of people's deaths. You know, just even if Dean didn't feel particularly like it was something that surface level he was guilty about, it still probably weighs on him, you know, just killing things for a living, even though he enjoys it. There's probably things he regrets that she is perfectly happy to latch onto. So they are stuck here. Dean knocks out two cops. Meanwhile, Sam's inside smashing every mirror that Bloody Mary appears in. And he, like Charlie, Sam is catching glimpses of her. She's not just confronting him face to face in his own mirror with his own reflection yet. She's dancing around the edges and Sam is catching it because he's looking for it actively unlike the earlier victims. He smashes several mirrors and then he focuses on Bloody Mary's original mirror and says, come on, come into this one. And as he stares, he realizes his reflection has changed and he's bleeding from his eyes. He drops the crowbar and his reflection begins accusing him of being the one who's responsible for Jess's death. You know, you killed her. We flash So Sam's inside, his eyes are bleeding, and Dean is still outside dealing with the cops. Meanwhile, Sam's reflection is saying, you never told her the truth, who you really were. Sam never told her about hunting, never told her about monsters and ghosts and everything about his life. But he also never told her about dreams that he had been having about her, that we have only just found out about really in this episode. I mean, we saw one nightmare of her reaching you know, he goes to her grave in Wendigo and has a hand come up and grab his wrist. But we don't see this 
recurring nightmare where where he relives her death that they are suggesting in this episode was something that he started dreaming before she died. So he's been dreaming it for like a month at this point, even though we this is the first we're really seeing of of it as a dream. So obviously Sam's reflection in the mirror is just an aspect of his own guilt over the fact that he just desperate, so desperately wanted to be normal that he ignored the dreams that he, even, even after he knew that they were something dangerous, like that he was supposed to have known that these dreams would come true. Dean makes it back in time, uh, just in time to shatter the mirror with the crowbar that Sam had dropped saving Sam from his own guilt yelling at him. And he thinks it's probably over, asks Sam if he's okay, because Sam's bleeding from his eyes, but luckily he's still okay. And in another nod to the pilot and to the fact that this was supposed to be the second episode of the series, in the pilot, you know how Sam corrected Dean when Dean called him Sammy, and he said, no, it's Sam. In this episode... He does the same thing again, and he hasn't been doing that in, like, every episode since. It would have gotten boring by now, but the fact that there is that gap of episodes where he lets Sammy fly or, you know, he doesn't complain about it or it just doesn't even come up as an issue, but now all of a sudden it's an issue again. It's, you know, in this moment when Sam has just been through an ordeal and Dean is helping him to his feet and helping him out the door... The one thing that Sam complains about is it's Sam, you know, like my name's not Sammy. He doesn't want to be called Sammy. And that's just one more thing that just feels like a remnant of a different story of Supernatural that could have been if they had gone a different way with this. As they're walking out, Sam has proved right on one point that just breaking Mary's mirror will not stop her because after Dean has broken it, she crawls out of it and confronts them directly. But now that she's corporeal, and don't we love that word here as fans of Supernatural? Um, Now that she's corporeal, her power works stronger. Just sort of like Specky the Wonder Demon last week. Oh, well, once once we get him out of his vessel and, and have him just him, it, it intensifies his strength and then we can banish him. It's kind of similar with Mary. She gets stronger. She's able to hurt both of them at the same time until Dean is smart enough to hold a mirror up to her. He grabs the the nearest mirror and points it directly back at Mary because if nothing else, over all the years that she's been active as a ghost, she has killed a lot of people. And Dean uses that against her. She He uses her as the weapon to destroy herself, her own guilt for what she's become. He gets her to look at herself in the mirror and her own curse takes over, accuses her of killing so many people. And when it does, Dean smashes the mirror and she shatters like glass. It's actually one of my favorite ghost flameouts. that's not a flameout, <laughs> but she shatters like glass. I just need to talk for a brief little moment, as I have in a few previous episodes, about Dean and the fact that he was planned. It was planned that he had some deep, dark secret about what specific guilt Bloody Mary pulled up in him and what that was tied to, because Kripke said the plot was abandoned after this episode. It was just never addressed again. And Sam was given this whole other plot of guilt 
So they go back to their hotel, pick up Charlie, bring her back to her house, drop her off. And first of all, where are all these girls' parents? I mean, the only parent we saw of any of the girls in this episode, who are all apparently high school age and younger, (laughs) the only parent we saw is the one who actively died in the cold open. So, like, I'm just wondering where all their parents are. Like, is anyone watching out for these children? Won't somebody please think of these children? Sam tells Charlie to forgive herself for her boyfriend's death, that nothing she could have done would have stopped it, and sometimes bad things just happen. Dean tells Sam to take his own advice, and then prompts Sam to confess that secret that he's keeping inside of him about that he felt guilty over regarding Jess's death. And Sam's just like, no, I'm just going to keep, you know, some things are that I just have to keep to myself, you know. And then we see him hallucinate Jess or see a vision of Jess standing on the sidewalk as they drive through town. Dean does not press Sam to continue talking, but we see Sam have this vision, which makes sense in the second episode of the series if this was like a farewell to Jess's ghost or something. But this is episode five now, and it feels more ominous and more... Like it's a bigger part of the story because they postponed it until now than if it had been something they'd been addressing all along or something that we had already hadn't been shown. Sam having worked past in last week's episode, it just feels so like it's going to be a much bigger part of the story now than it was originally planned to be. I'm also appreciative of that because we get a lot of amazing storylines because of this. It's also unclear at this point, even five episodes in, what the nature of Sam's dreams are. Are they just trauma related? Is it related to his mother's death? Is he, is this some sort of self-punishment or is this a real psychic ability? We, we had no idea that Sam had any psychic ability at this point. When these originally aired, nobody knew what was going to happen next. The speculation was like, okay, but is he, is, do these dreams mean something? Is he being haunted by Jess? Is, is it like some sort of suggestion after the fact that is making him believe that he saw these dreams before she died and could have stopped it? There was no understanding of what the true nature of Sam's eventual psychic powers would be or if they would have even materialized at all had they gone a different route with this and it had been episode two. This could have just been written off as trauma that he experienced after Jess's death. You know, the show could have gone an entirely different route. And it would have been really... I'm, I'm See why I'm just, like, so glad that all of these coincidences and things happened to give us the show that we ended up getting because what we got, I would not want to change. <laughs> at least not until the finale. We can change that. But while Sam, what Sam learned while he was away at Stanford and because of Jess's death is that you really can't just push something away and pretend it doesn't exist and be safe from it. There is no safe in the world. No matter where you go, there you are, you know, and this is where he begins to feel like he's cursed. This is also the point at which he begins to acknowledge that you can't just bury it and pretend it doesn't exist. And that will be addressed to an even greater extent and in far more scope 
in next week's episode, season one, episode six, Skin. Before I wrap this up today, um, there's a few more things that I need to mention since I one of my goals in this podcast is to talk about the cosmology of the universe, everything that works together throughout the series and remains consistent throughout the series. And in this episode, it's the way the concept of guilt is handled and the personal responsibility that causes someone to experience this sort of guilt and what ramifications it can have on them as a person. And in this case, it's only being judged by a ghost who will kill you if you if you bear this particular sort of guilt that she identifies with. In some ways, it's similar to the guilt that the woman in white bore in the pilot episode. She could never go home. She could never confront her own responsibility for her children's death. But this is very specifically different. This is the sort of guilt that we will see explored more in season seven, episode five, defending your life. When Dean is put on trial by Osiris, weighing his guilt, seeing if he deserves to be saved or not, based not on Osiris's judgment of him, but on Osiris's judgment of how Dean feels the burden of guilt on his own soul. We'll find out later that this was part of the overall system of cosmic justice in the universe in season 14, episode eight, Byzantium, when we experience the same thing with the god Anubis judging Lily Sunder's soul as she works to save not only Jack's life, but her own, her own soul. Will she go to heaven when she dies? Will she go to hell? And that's not a burden that that Anubis can just take off of her. It's something that she has to feel redeemed about. Like it's her own redemption by her own belief that she deserves to be saved. So it plays into faith, but it also plays into the fate of a soul. Are you destined for heaven? Are you destined for hell? What is your fate based on your own choices? Do you choose to forgive yourself for your mistakes and choose to do something better? That's what saved Lily Sunder, her choice to sacrifice her last bit of life energy and helping to save Jack, to give him the ability to continue living through her personal knowledge that she could grant to him. But in doing so, knowing that she would likely die in the process and choosing to do it anyways, because it was the right thing to do. And that act, that act of selflessness redeemed her and enabled her to go to heaven, which is kind of frustrating when applied in early the next season to Rowena, who even after working actively for two seasons to redeem her soul, to redeem herself, to choose better, to do the right thing. She still, her ultimate act of sacrifice was still not enough to save her from hell because sometimes it's just up to the whim of, of God, what happens to you. And it's one of the most frustrating things to me that she was never redeemed from that the way Lily Sunder was the way pretty much every other character was uh and that Crowley was not redeemed after his ultimate sacrifice we don't know what his fate was after he died in the alternate universe I truly hope that he had a better fate than (laughs) but we if we have to assume he went to the empty um and that he was there somewhere unfortunately I didn't 
think we would we would ever see Crowley again in the guise that we recognized. Um, and I didn't think that they would bring the character back without Mark Shepard playing him. So that played into why we never saw Crowley's fate. But I like to think that he was on a track for redemption as well. At least he didn't end up stuck in the hell that he hated his entire existence. But that is a common theme throughout the entire series. What is fate versus free will? What drives your destiny is at least partially, as we'll learn through Billy's books, when we learn about Billy's library, Death's library, they rewrite themselves based on on your choices during life. So if you choose something different, your destiny will be rewritten based on your own choices. So how intertwined are fate and free will? And how easy is it to change your fate by your choices and actions in life? Choosing better, choosing to do the right thing, choosing you know, self-sacrifice over the easy way out. It all affects your, your destiny in the end because your destiny is not written in stone. It's written on ever-changing paper and it just, you make your own in a way. So it's, it's an interesting thing to, to look at and we're going to look at it constantly because the show deals with it in all sorts of different ways throughout the entire series. And it's one of the foundation. This is one of the foundation stones of the cosmology of the entire universe. And I'm really looking forward to getting into it more as we go on. And it just occurred to me that I did not, I said last week I was going to start a new segment where I talked about the writer and the director. Um, and I'm still too obsessed about Kripke, but uh, Kripke did write the story. So <laughs> it feels, it feels okay to have talked about him. So this was Kripke's story. This was it was rewritten by a couple other writers, Ron Milbauer and Terry Hughes Burton, who I don't know what their other credits are off the top of my head, but um, Kripke is the one that's important to this episode. So I don't think I even really have any links other than the super wiki to give out today. Um, <laughs> this was a pretty straightforward episode, and except for where it went all convoluted. Um, the link to the, the documents I talked about, the early episodes, arenas last week, the links to those documents are in last week's episode. And other than that, I think that pretty much covers it for this week. Oh, the only final piece of business I have is that I do now officially have a Discord server open. Just contact me through any of my social medias. Supernatural George uh, on Tumblr, SPN George on Tumblr, uh, or Mittens Morgul on Tumblr. And I will happily, or even on Twitter, Mittens Morgul on Twitter, I will see your DMs and I will send you a link to join the server if you'd like to chat. We've had a few people join and had some really interesting chats so far this week. Hopefully you all join us there and we can have some fun. I'll talk to y'all soon. Have a good week. I should really come up with some sort of outro, like a sign sign off, like mittens out is stupid. I'm not out of mittens. Uh, hmm. Actually, I have to think about that. <laughs>